Dr. Jesus, let's see. There's the graphic. All right. Thank you, Keith, helping me out there. Uh, we're in our final week. We've been asking the question, what does it mean to be a church like Jesus? Because we acknowledge that we don't always look like Jesus' ministry when we do church. That sometimes we like to follow corporate models and those sorts of things, and we can learn from those things. But you know what? What does it mean in the, uh, in the age of the Reformation, as we were talking about earlier, to get back to Scripture, to get back to what Jesus did? And so we've been wrestling with that. We've talked about invitation, about how we need to be hospitable and how Jesus was inviting uh, to everyone and how we need to uh, be concerned about how we are reaching out to others. We talked about Jesus' creative use of communication, that he taught the same timeless truths, but he was creative in the way that he did it. And then we talked about first impressions and why those matter, even when guests are coming into our midst, why the first impressions do matter, such as when your technology fails you or your person setting up the technology, that's me, not Keith, fails you to update something. Uh, We talked about worship. Uh, Rachel actually preached that Sunday and shared what it means to worship, uh, uh, to be a church like Jesus in worship. And we talked about care and follow-up. And then last Sunday we talked about the next generation. We talked, you saw the passage up there about bring the little children to me and why the next generation matters so much. And in this final week, we're going to talk a little bit about smaller gatherings. Some churches call them small groups. There's a lot of different ways that you can do that, but we're going to look at it more from the philosophical standpoint of why would that be even important, and is it even biblical? So before we go any further, let's go to God in prayer, uh, because I don't know about you, I need some prayer. I need the Holy Spirit if we're going to go any further. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are, that you love us so deeply. We thank you for this time of worship as we gather in your name. This is about you. It is not about us. So, Lord, continue to speak to us through your holy scriptures. We pray that as you speak to us, that you would silence any voice in us but your own, that you prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our very souls to hear your word to us this day. And, Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints said, Amen. We sat down at the table, and it felt a little weird. We felt lighter. Lighter? Why? Well, we didn't have a diaper bag with us. We didn't have a cooler full of snacks, food, and milk, and that sort of things. We didn't have toys and other devices of distraction that normally would accompany us on such occasions. And here we were, two chairs at one table, which is a novel concept if you have kids, isn't it? Two chairs, that's it. No high chair, no extra chair with a booster in it, no children's menu and crayons. Just the two of us. And I looked across the table at the beautiful woman I get to call my wife, and it was like seeing her again for the first time. Why? Because for so long, I had not been looking at her in that way. Too often, we are ships passing in the night, and it's amazing how quickly two familiar people can become strangers. Marriage is tough. 
Can I get an amen from the married individuals in this room? Marriage is tough. It's a challenge. You know, it's a novel concept at first, isn't it? I love working with pre-married couples, and sadly, it's been a few years since I've been here that I haven't been able to do that, because it's fun to meet with these couples, to see their dreams, to see their aspirations, to see the excitement around marriage that is usually lacking in a few years. Because it's a novel concept at first. We're excited. I mean, you still actually like the person you're married, you're going to be married to. That changes over time, doesn't it? Those, those cute little habits that you think are cute at first that become the most annoying things possible later, everything shifts over time, doesn't it? We change. Couples change. Relationships change. And perhaps the greatest change happens if you have children. Everything changes at that point. Your focus shifts and it becomes harder and harder. I remember when we found out we were pregnant with Micah. We were meeting with the doctor one time, and the illustration she gave me just has really stuck with me. You know, Kate was really worried of, all right, I got to make sure I, I eat enough. I've got to support this baby. But then, you know, I she felt guilty about eating more and that sort of thing. And the doctor said, oh, honey, don't worry about the baby. Babies are perfect parasites. The baby's going to take what it needs at your expense. So really, the eating extra and everything you're doing is for you. Because the baby's going to get what it needs. But you know what? Children remain parasites long after the umbilical cord is cut, don't they? It's all about me, me, me. Me, me, I need this, I need this. Mommy, 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 daddy, 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 daddy. Oh my goodness, it is all about them. I mean, children are the perfect illustration of our original fallen nature, aren't they? We are selfish from the day we are born. And do we ever really outgrow that? But everything becomes focused on this other life. You see, when Kate and I sat down for that date, when we finally spoke to each other, and it wasn't to... Just, hey, how was your day? Or could you pass the salt? Or, who's going to change that diaper? I can smell it. Somebody went. But we actually shared feelings. We shared aspirations. We talked about our fears. We talked about our struggles. We actually spoke to one another. You see, our busy lives as, as parents, as a photographer, as a pastor, as parents caring, caring for a sick child with medical issues, another one that needs to go to school and, and is constantly needing to be entertained. You see, this date night wasn't just a time of peace and away from the chaos. It was a time to reconnect with my bride. We need times to reconnect with people, don't we? And it's not exclusive to a married or dating relationship, is it? We can grow apart, can't we? Have you ever had an old friend that over the years you've just kind of drifted apart? Different interests, different lifestyles just kind of pulled you apart. See, people don't stay together because they're just so suited and they have the best chemistry in the world. That's not why people stay together. People stay together because their tug is stronger than the pull. Their tug is stronger than the pull. Earlier, we read the story about Mary and Martha. Perhaps for some of you, this is a familiar 
tale. You have Mary and busy Martha. Where was Mary in the passage? Flipped. Come on, Mike. You're the one who read it. (laughs) They're both ends. That's right. So Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha is busying herself. You know, I really identify with Martha in this passage. When we have guests come over, I want to be hospitable. So I'm the one in the kitchen. I'm prepping dinner. I want to make sure everything's just so. And afterwards, I'm getting the dishes and putting on. She's just so busy caring for the special guest that she's missing time with the special guest. Mary chose to fight that pull and stay at the feet of Jesus while Martha was pulled every which way. What's the pull in your life? What are the things pulling on you, pulling away? Is it, is it, I mean, it can be good things. That's the challenge with it. The pull can be really good things. Are children bad things? Well, sometimes. But they can be really good. I mean, we talked, I preached uh, last Sunday about how good the next generation is. So we're going to go with the good thing. It can be really good. Having a work and a job and, and having purpose in your life is a good thing. But these things can pull from us. Our, our hobbies. What's pulling at you? Your responsibilities. If our relationship to one another matters so deeply, what about our relationship with God? What pulls at your relationship with God? Because it's not always easy to maintain your relationship with God, is it? Who here has no trouble whatsoever finding time to read their Bible and pray and spend time with God? It's easy. Never have any struggles there. Never have any struggles coming to church, gathering with people here. Well, no, we never have those struggles, right? There's always a pull, isn't there? So what's your pull? And is your tug stronger than the pull. See, the pull doesn't just pull our, at our relationships, it pulls at our relationship with God, and it impacts our faith and how we see the world. I mean, have, you ever, have you ever been in a situation where you're, you feel you're in a kind of a spiritual drought? You're having trouble connecting with God. In fact, you find yourself saying, I don't even hear God talking to me. God is silent on everything, and you feel alone. Doesn't that affect the way you view absolutely everything? How you feel when you get out of bed in the morning, how you approach your job, how you even speak to your children or your spouse or your friends, it affects everything. And we live in a world full of distractions. There's lots of distractions. There's lots of pressures. There's lots of powers pulling at us that wish to pull us apart from each other and apart from God, don't believe me, watch the news. How many forces out there are pulling us apart, dividing us from each other? These forces take many different forms, but their origin is as old as sin, because it is our sin that's pulling at us and pulling us apart. So how can we possibly combat these forces that are trying to pull us apart. See, the early church faced great persecution. That's why I love the book of Acts. Here you have this whole book that talks about how the early church 
that formed, you know, the first Christians after the death and resurrection of Jesus, how they formed the church that looks quite different than it did today, and all the pressures they were under, but yet under those pressures they grew and grew and grew because their tug was stronger than their pull. And in one particular story we're going to look at in Acts chapter 5, Peter and a group of disciples have been arrested, and they've been cast into prison because they're out there preaching heresy, or so the council says. So they throw him in prison, and, and then there's a miraculous story of how this angel comes in the night and releases them and tells them to go back to the temple courts and begin teaching and preaching again. And so when the council wakes up and the officials that had put them in prison, they see they're out of prison and they're back out preaching again. It's like the Energizer Bunny. You just can't stop them. It's like, my goodness, they're like cockroaches. Here they are, preaching and teaching heresy again. And so they drag them before the council again. And you could tell that the council is just angry. So let's, let's start there, chapter 5, starting at verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as his right, as his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Okay, first of all, this is pretty bold of Peter to be speaking to this group that has the power to condemn them, throw them back in prison and kill them. I would imagine he's a little emboldened because he realized, well, you threw us in prison and we got out anyway. God is on our side. And then in the story, a disagreement arises as the council that's divided themselves try to figure out what to do with these pesky Christians, these people preaching this name of Jesus. And the chief priest of all people steps in and convinces the group to let them go at this time. It's a fascinating story, and his response is a sermon all its own. So we're not going to go down that rabbit trail today. But then they come back to him in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, being Peter and the disciples, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And 42 and every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Those last two verses really kind of stick with me. How often do you rejoice in your circumstances that are bad because you've done what is good for Jesus? Do you rejoice that you get to suffer for Jesus? I'm not getting an amen for that, am I? 
Do you rejoice that you get to suffer for Jesus? Come on, come suffer with us. I mean, that's a rally call, isn't it? Come to church and suffer with us. Come talk to Jesus, uh, people about Jesus and suffer with us. But yet they rejoiced that they received suffering and dishonor because of the name of Jesus. And then every day, in the temple and house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Were these disciples made of sterner stuff than us? That they would rejoice in such suffering? Maybe. But not necessarily. Let's look at that final verse, 42. And every day in the temple and in the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. We get a glimpse, I think, at their secret in this passage. Sure, they were stern, bold individuals. But why were they so emboldened? They knew their God, and they trusted each other. Every day, every day, they worshiped Jesus together. Every day. So our first point is this. A church like Jesus does life together every day. Every day. Let's look at it this way. When you're training for a race or event, so Keith, you're training for your triathlon. Does it work only to train one day a week for that race? What's going to happen if you train one day a week for that race? You're going to fail miserably. It's going to hurt. <laughs> it's not going to end well. You train practically every day. Maybe you take some rest days. Hmm, Sabbath, anybody? And then you work hard the rest of the days. You train your body for that. If you want a promotion at work, do you only show up one day a week and expect to get the promotion? If you do, you're stupid. If you want, you work hard. You're there day in, day out. You're consistent. If your child gets a dirty diaper, does it work to change it one day a week? Nope. I can tell you unequivocally, it does not work. If you are hungry, are you satisfied by one meal a week? No. See, all this sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That makes, that makes sense. Why, why wouldn't you do this every day? But yet, essentially, so many of us, that's how we treat our faith. It's a one day a week thing. Maybe even just one hour a week. We figure if we make it to church one day a week, we're, we're, we're pretty good. We're pretty golden, aren't we? We're good. We'll sustain our holiness throughout the week. We often live with the mentality that, that somehow we can manage our faith on our own. And don't get me wrong, personal time with God is important. Devotional time that we're talking about, reading scripture, studying, praying, it's all important. But our faith was never meant to be lived alone meant to be lived together now i'm not saying that we all need to come and just take over the school and say now this is our church so we're going to live here we got bathrooms we can live here right they got a little kitchenette over there we'll just come and live here no we live together outside of where we gather for worship 
we do life together. We join together. We're stronger together. We need to spend more time together as believers doing life in the midst of others. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean we need to be a church with more programs. Because programs don't always get at what we're talking about. But relationships outside of gathering for worship is important. Then after every day, what does it mention? It says, in the temple. So this would be our temple, our place of worship. And from house to house. House to house. Why are homes important? Why would they go to homes too? Why do you think homes were important to mention? It's where we live. There's non-believers around. Mm -hmm. It's where we actually do life, isn't it? How many of you do life here? Anybody? Nobody lives here? Nobody teaches here? Don't show up during the week? No, we don't. We live in and around our homes. So that leads us to our second point. A church like Jesus joins together for encouragement and strength because that happens when we're out there doing life together in our homes. It's encouragement. It's strength. Don't you find that you are encouraged when you, when you gather with friends, when people who support you, when you come and you take part of things of this church and we're, we're studying Scripture together, we're talking about it, I know that Mike and Keith and I enjoy our Tuesday mornings at the coffee shop of that sometimes our conversations are holier than others. I'll admit that. But we encourage one another. We strengthen one another. We wrestle with hard passages of, passages of Scripture, and that's how we start our day. And usually Tuesdays are one of my better days because that's how I start it with these gentlemen. And sure, I could start it on my own by reading Scripture, but I can tell you it's not the same. As the conversations we have, we are stronger, we encourage one another. Has anyone ever seen a redwood tree in this room? Anybody? It's on my bucket list. I would love to see a redwood tree. I mean, these trees are massive, aren't they? You can, in fact, they have some that you can drive through them. They built a tunnel and you can drive through them, these massive, huge trees. But I can tell you something that's amazing about redwood trees is that you would expect that they would have extremely deep root systems to support these massive trees, wouldn't you? I mean, you think all that mass is above ground, you'd have to have some pretty deep anchors in the ground to hold it in place to withstand all the elements. But you know what? In reality, redwoods have one of the most shallow root systems ever. They only go about five to six feet deep tops. Now, do you think alone that's enough to support this massive tree that you can drive a car through? No. So then how do they stay anchored in the ground? Well, they grow in groves. And what they lack in depth, they make up for and spread. And their root systems spread, and they intertwine with the roots of other redwoods. To where if you were to look underground and get a picture of the root systems, it's all intertwined and tied together like a big ball of twine. Is all the roots support one another. And so the more trees that are there, the stronger they are together. You can't remove one redwood from the others because they are all just so mingled together. Isn't that fascinating? Here you have these massive strong trees that their strength is not found in their size, but their strength is found in their numbers. 
aren't we similar? One cord can easily be broken, but a cord of three woven together is much stronger. We are stronger together if we can encourage one another. And that's the point of gathering in smaller groups in our church. Because we can't have a worship service every single day of the week. Well, we could, but my guess is you guys wouldn't show up to that. So we, we join up for smaller groups and, and we can worship through other, other forms. But we gather to strengthen and encourage one another. That's the point of it. We gather to strengthen and support one another. That's part of the reason the disciples and Peter had the strength to withstand the council knowing what they were up against. But for our third point, let's go back to the earlier passage of Mary and Martha. Mary was praised for doing what? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Was she just sitting there? No. She was listening, hearing Jesus, communing with him. She's praised because she was at the feet of the living word of God. And we can do that when we sit before the feet of Jesus, when we join together, when we read scripture, when we sit together before the written word. So that leads us to our third point, a church like Jesus constantly gathers together around God's word. See here, it's not just gathering around so that we can have fun, because we can gather in smaller groups and we can have fun together, and it's important to have fun together, but there's an intentionality about it, isn't it? Because the distractions and the pull would have us not talking about our faith. But we gather to talk about our faith, to talk about the source of our faith, Holy Scripture. So there is an intentionality that's needed there. Now there's a, a lot of different churches that do different forms of small group ministry. And there's some valid points for all of them. I'm not here saying that we as a church need to follow this one model of small group ministry. In fact, I think it's much more diverse than that. We have different personality types Different, we're different people. In fact, I heard a friend of mine recently preached on uh, this same topic, and he spoke of a small group he heard in a church that they, um, they gather in a coffee shop, and they gather for, and for the first, like, 30 minutes. They all sit separate, and they read scripture, and then they journal. Then they spend about 15 minutes alone, praying by themselves, and then they gather for, like, the last 20 minutes and they discuss what they journaled about. A little different than a lot of small groups and studies perhaps you've been to before, doesn't it? If you're an extrovert, you're thinking, man, that is awful. Why would you spend so much time alone? And if you're an introvert, you're thinking, why do they need 20 minutes to talk? Isn't that long? But there's some people who find that interesting. There's some small, smaller groups that maybe you're going out and doing an activity together. You're not going to sit in a coffee shop. We're going to go serve in the community together and we're going to talk while we're doing it. Smaller groups aren't meant just for believers. We open it up. I mean, I know that online you mentioned the question, Liesl, about non-believers. Absolutely. I think as we do things, we have to be welcoming to all individuals. And some of the most impactful groups I've been a part of have been open to anybody. And we've had some great conversations with non-believers who have really good questions. 
We have to think outside the box. But I think we do need to gather together outside of worship. And this is where I need your help. Do you have an idea for a group? Do you enjoy doing something? Do you want to invite somebody to come along with you? Let us know. We'll give you the blessing, help you out in any way you can, and say, okay, who wants to come and do this? Mike, Keith, and I gather Tuesday mornings for coffee at 6.30 at Wake Forest Coffee, and we're done. Well, we try to be done by 7.15, but a lot of times it's 7.30, but if you need to leave at 7.15, you can to get to work. Uh, but you're, men, you're welcome to join us for that. We have opportunities to gather in Jesus' name. Will we seize them? What are your interests? How do we as Christ the Word become more of a church like Jesus? We've talked about a lot of different things throughout this past week. But I think we think small with big aspirations. It starts with baby steps. What's one thing you can do to step in the right direction? What's one thing you can, you can do to help draw you closer to God because God is already pursuing you? If you want to have conversations about it, I'm always available. You should have my contact information. Call me. I'll treat you to a cup of coffee and we can chat further. But my hope that as we continue this journey of cultivating a Christ-centered community, as we seek to see our community changed by the hope and healing of Jesus, that more and more we begin to resemble Jesus as individuals, but as a group of people. Because wouldn't it be amazing if when people look at us, they actually see a church like Jesus? Let us go to God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you've placed a high call upon each and every one of us. And we even thank you and praise you for the challenges you place in our way. Lord, may we be emboldened like Peter and the disciples. May we have the focus of Mary to forget and ignore the distractions and the pulls around us that we might sit at your feet. And Lord, empower us as we continue to pursue this bold vision that you've given us as a church. That you would show us and reveal to us opportunities that we can be hope and healing in this community. In a world that needs to hear more and more about Jesus. We pray all of this in your mighty saving name. And all the saints said, Amen.